Good evening and welcome to Amplify, the telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. We have an interesting topic for you tonight. It deals with the church and a decision that um, churches have to make, perhaps especially after this particular crisis. But we'll talk more about that later. As, but I'd like to begin our program as we do each week with a story that is based on faith and form with imagination. A man of wisdom came and listened to Jesus with great interest. And when the crowd had dispersed, he still sat there. Jesus asked him, Have you no place to go, my friend? The wise man smiled and answered, Yes, but I'm very tired. Then come and I shall help you to get up, Jesus said. He began to laugh and said, It's not my body, but my mind and my soul. I understand, Jesus said. Man thinks the body gets tired, but it cannot compare with the heaviness the mind and the spirit feel from the weight of the sins of the world. My friend, the wise man said, I've lived many, many, many years. I've seen people come and go. I've listened to the great masters. I'm like a water jar filled to the brim, but my burden grows heavier for I'm getting older and I can no longer retain everything. Jesus said, I tell you this, share that water. Give to those who need to drink the water of life. Give them the gift of knowledge so that their understanding of life may deepen. Lessen your burden by sharing it with others. If you do not, then I say, it should never have been given to you in the first place. Your mind is good and strong. Share what you have learned and you shall be blessed by my Father. The man looked at Jesus and said, Master, what I know frightens me sometimes. I know the Father's rules are simple, but many men find them difficult to follow. Why is this? Jesus looked at his hands, spreading his fingers, and said, We have five fingers. Is this not so? Yes, the man answered. Jesus said, on this one hand there are five, and if one finger is lost, it becomes more difficult to pick up a seed. If two or three are lost, you can still manage, but with none? The answer was obvious. Jesus continued, life is like this. Men of knowledge must stand together and help those who cannot learn by themselves. Be a gift to others, my friend. And you shall not be forgotten when you appear at my Father's door. A story of faith and imagination. Scott McKnight writes in the foreword of a book titled Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. I wear a wristwatch, an Apple watch if you care to know, but the face of the watch is an old-fashioned set of watch arms, a long one for minutes, a shorter one for hours, and a moving second hand. The terms analog and digital aren't part of my day-to-day -day vocabulary, but I suppose you could say my watch 
is a hybrid of analog and digital, an attempt perhaps to have the best of both worlds. Of course, I'm typing or keyboarding this on a laptop computer, which is nothing less than a godsend for any number of reasons. But I remember when I used to write on a piece of paper, text on the top half and footnotes on the bottom half, and then type it into a manuscript on a manual and later electric typewriter. My world is hybridity. The digital parts of my world are convenient. I really have no interest in typing on a manual typewriter anymore. And quick, using digital tools, I once did a bibliography for a book in about seven seconds. These are digital components I've embraced, but I have some limits. I don't read my Bible digitally, though I do research on biblical texts with Bible software programs. I buy lots of books, almost none of them electronically, and the e-books I do have I don't use. I want to touch the pages, smell the paper, fill the binding, and underline and mark the pages. We don't do church digitally. If my church went digital, I'd stop going. We meet in a room, more than a hundred of us. We know one another's names. We touch one another, laugh with one another, sip coffee with one another. We see one another's faces and hear the timber in one another's voices. There's a theology behind what Kay Kim, that's our guest tonight, Kay Kim, very helpfully calls analog church, and it's the incarnation. God became one of us. He became Jewish in the first century in a Judean Galilee ruled by Rome and its underlings. For some people, Christianity is digital. God sent a message to us, and we pick it up somehow, either believe it or not, and then either live according to it or not. But God didn't send a message. God sent his son, born of a real woman, married to a real man who had a real job. They all, the whole of them, experienced real problems because very few brought their story of a virginal conception. But Jesus grew up and became a real man and found real humans with real bodies to follow him and extend his kingdom mission to the broken and wounded in this part, in his part of the world. If Jesus is God incarnate, then God chose to reveal himself in analog, not digital. You can communicate a message in words and send such a message on paper slash papyrus, but you can't see the revelation of God except in that one person, the person who lived, died on the cross, who was raised up, who ascended, who rules, and who will come again. The author writes in a, or the author of this book, and our guest this evening is Pastor Jay Kim. He is pastor of teaching and leadership at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. He also serves on the core leadership team of Regeneration Project and co-hosts Regeneration Podcast. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and two children. Pastor Jay Kim, welcome to Amplify. Thank you so much, Father Ron. Really uh, honored to be on with you. 
honored to have you after reading your book. I learned a lot from your book. You and I had a little conversation beforehand. I've been involved in media since 1973, uh, back at a time when we were, when denominational religions were fighting for space in the newspapers. They had what was called the Saturday religion page. It was one page on the Saturday paper. And then they huh. then they wanted to they wanted to be on radio and then they wanted to be on television then they wanted to be on cable and now we you know we want to be on social media and everywhere and that's part of what we're going to talk about but first of all I'm not familiar with the regeneration project you're a part of tell me a little bit about it yeah the regeneration project is uh, it's really a passion project uh, I'm a part of a, a really wonderful team. It was a, it's a ministry that was born out of Western Theological Seminary up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, a dear friend of mine who I also serve on staff with at our church, uh, a guy named Dan Kimball, um, started it uh, several years ago. Uh, and, and really the design of the project is to uh, create a collective of church leaders and theologians and artists and, um, you know, young and old folks who are interested in uh, I- inviting new emerging generations to consider or reconsider the beauty of the scriptures and yes. of um, uh, the robust sort of theology that uh, I think has been um, turned sort of into a caricature, you know, in, yes. in our modern, late modern Western world. And so uh, that's what we do. Um, and we try to do that through, you know, events and we have a podcast and uh, have content on our website, um, just trying to sort of engage and confront maybe some of the more difficult questions of, of theology that uh, especially emerging generations are asking. But hopefully I think that, you know, they're of interest to, to all generations. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I'm a part of that Great. team alongside Dan Kimball and several others, and it's an absolute joy to do it. Now, you, uh, you uh, know... And uh, love Scripture so much. You love God so much and the word that has come from Jesus' mouth. Where did that love of God and Scripture come from? I know part of the answer has to be your mother because you have a nice story you tell about mm-hmm. in your book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I grew up, uh, you know, single-parent home, uh, no siblings, so it was a quiet house in that it was just my mother and I, but my mother was hardly home. Uh, she, you know, a single parent trying to make a way, forge a life for us. She was constantly working two, sometimes three jobs at a time, so I was home alone quite a bit, but my mother... Um, she she's been a passionate follower of Jesus for as long as I can remember, uh, and and not just a passionate follower of Jesus, but someone who has a deep deep love for the scriptures and uh, deep love for the Word. She she still to this day, you know, she's seventy one now, and um, to this day uh, and every day that I've ever known her, she begins and ends her day every day uh, in in scripture and in prayer, and and I don't mean like the quick sort of trite, you know, 30-second, help me have a good day, Lord, sort of prayer, but like extended time of prayer and um, focus uh, on on the Spirit of God within her through the Scriptures. So she'll pray extended periods of time, and 
and read um, extended sections of passages uh, of the Bible um, every morning and every evening. And so she, uh, for again, you know, going back as far as I can remember, she invited me into that journey. And every night, uh, as I, when I was a kid growing up until I graduated high school, every single night uh, that she was home, um, we had what she called family worship time. And so it would be these long extended, you know, moments of digging into God's Word. And I, I did not enjoy it when I was a kid. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> going to bring that up, yeah. And yeah. Ne- and neither does, your, neither does your daughter right now, but she's very young. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, it was a source of, you know, torment for me. I just, I wanted to get to bed or do my own thing, read my own books, you know, and Um, but that's where the love came from, you know, it just got, it became embedded in me and in my, uh, really deep in my, in my bones really, you know, from an early age. So now, you know, all these years later, as I've sort of, uh, gone through the journey of, of, um, falling in love with the text for myself, uh, I just realized the sort of rich history that my mother, um, gifted me with. Uh, you know, it's 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 just deep inside of who I am. I I, uh, I have an, a sort of un, insatiable curiosity about the scriptures. I, I just like the, it's this incredible, you know, incredible library of books that I'm constantly just discovering new things and really ultimately, you know, experiencing the Spirit of God, changing and transforming me through. His story is uh, just a beautiful thing. So, you know, there's lots of things that play into it. Obviously, my, my you know, seminary experience has been incredibly helpful, informative. Uh, my time in, in local church ministry and just seeing the, the truth of Scripture come alive yes. in the hearts and minds of people and actually change and transform lives. I mean, all those things play a part. But I think the, the genesis of it really begins with, with my mom. Um, right. So, yeah. And it covers everything. Our, our local diocese is, has uh, been making a strong effort at evangelizing since it cuts across the whole board. But it, as we begin, we're gonna, it's going to take the whole program in, in many ways. But for, for people who may not know the difference, tell us basically the difference between the analog church and the digital church so they can catch on right from the beginning a little bit of what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, when I say analog, just the word analog, I understand that it's got some elasticity of meaning, but I'm intending to use the word in uh, what what I perceive to be its sort of most baseline um, definition. And by that, what I mean is that analog is that which is physical, tactile, and embodied. And so by analog church, I mean church as a physical, tactile, embodied the theological word would be, you know, as Scott McKnight says in the forward, would be incarnational, an in-the-flesh reality. And so uh, that's what I mean by analog church, that the church at its core essence is a physical, tactile, uh, most importantly embodied, incarnational, in-the-flesh, people um, sharing life with one another shoulder-to-shoulder, in the muck and the mire of the ups and downs and long stretches of plateaus of life. And uh, that, you know, I'm trying to juxtapose that against the backdrop of the digital age, which and and all of the technologies offered to us by the digital age. And, you know, there's sort of a, I think there's been some misunderstanding by by some folks who 
maybe haven't really read the book, but sort of have made some assumptions based on the title and the subtitle that I'm arguing for sort of the removal of all things digital or that people should become Luddites or Amish or something. And uh, I'm certainly not doing that. You know, I have a deep appreciation for the, the digital technologies, which offer so much convenience and, and in some ways comfort and, and some initiating uh, avenues for making some connection with one another. But um, at, at, at the end of the day, you know, the church, uh, my ecclesiology tells me that the church has to be an embodied physical um, mm-hmm. tactile, incarnational reality. So that's what I mean by, by analog church uh, in light of the digital age and all of the technologies that are offered to us today. Yeah, you, you gathered all so well in the book when you say that digital informs, analog transforms, and you write that the, mm. the truth is we need both. We need information, but information should always move us toward transformation, Information is the means. Transformation is the end. And so what are, um, tell us about the digital age and uh, some of its inadequacies. It was interesting that uh, today when I was walking through outside the studio here, there was an interview from the past with a man who was uh, one of the engineers here many years ago. As As I've told you, I've been here for 45 years and he has kind of a museum of all the old stuff that he that he has kept since uh, way before, even 45 years ago. This radio station is 100 years uh, old this very year. Uh, wow. And uh, it was just fascinating seeing these tubes and, and, and everything. But, but to get to that question, even the title of the introduction, uh, the introduction to your book is EDM and grandma's church. And I saw EDM and what the heck is EDM? I'm saying, I know grandmother's church because it's my church. So it's grandfather's church for sure. Uh, You're speaking to grandpa, but it's electronic dance music. And I I didn't even know that. So we're all struggling to say the same things in, in new and different ways, but haven't we always been trying to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're quoting, uh, uh, a poem there by Dobby Gibson that um, just struck me as as incredibly sort of helpful in framing that chapter. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the chapter is called EDM and Grandma's Church because I I began the chapter with a story about a dear friend of mine who is an EDM artist, an electronic dance music artist. And is this Jake? Uh, for those who is this Jake? Yeah, this is Jake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah that's right. Go and, ahead. Um, yeah, those who are unfamiliar with the world of EDM, it's uh, it's this incredibly sort of, to me, very strange subculture, subgenre of, of popular music. It's you know electronic dance music, and uh, he he does that professionally. He's an, he's a, he makes that sort of music, and he tours globally, literally all over the world, and plays these sold out venues, and festivals, and um, you know what's really fascinating to me is that if you Imagine sort of, you know, a a modern, standard, sort of Western evangelical church, particularly ones that are at least trying to sort of display themselves as a younger, hipper, cooler church, and there are plenty of those. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that approach, and certainly I'm a fan of 
wanting to, um, you know, connect to younger generations. Absolutely. But, you know, they sort of mimic what we see in the world of popular culture, meaning it looks, sounds, and feels very much like, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like an EDM concert yes. and, uh, you know, the, the lights and the sound and just all of it. And uh, I just found it fascinating because my friend Jake, who, who does that professionally, um, went to a church like that not long ago, and he uh, his response to that experience, he texted me and said, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel cool enough to be there, you know? I, yeah. uh, it, it was, just struck me as so strange because I just thought, what are you talking about? Like, everything about that experience should have been so utterly familiar to you that you ought to have felt incredibly at home and comfortable and and what he told me was, you know, I don't think church should be like that. And basically what he meant was that when he goes to church, if he, and he's not, he's not a church-going guy, you know, but uh, he happened to go that Sunday with his family. Jay, let me and, break in. Uh, hold, hold your story there. Let me break in, break, sure. because we need to take this break. Uh, he was looking for relevance, not transcendence. But let's take this break, and we'll be back. Welcome back to uh, Amplifying, where our guest this evening is Pastor Jay Kim. He's written a book called Analog Church. We're going to get back to where I cut him off at the, during the first part of the program. But uh, part of the reason I thought this was a good time to have had this interview scheduled, it was scheduled a long time, I didn't plan for it. It was all, again, matter of divine providence, was a lot of people are watching, participating in their church services now through their computer not their computer, their children's or their grandchildren's computer. And they're saying, oh, this is so comfortable. I don't have to go get changed and dressed and go to church somewhere. Some, Well, do we really want that in the future? Is that what you really want? It's a little bit different than what we just heard, the the um, uh, explanation about uh, the hope that you would take KDK app with you. It used to be just over the air. The station was a 50,000-watt clear channel, touches Touch 38 states, half of Canada, and now, of course, uh, we're on the internet now. So we're we're through, we're throughout the world. Um, so that's part of the question that we're, we're getting into. But um, when I when I cut you off, Jay, a little bit, and then I'm sorry to pull the uh, story away from you, but I knew it was going to oh, take okay. a while to get there. When I said that, yeah. what Jake Jake was really interested in was he was looking for something timeless. He didn't. He was he's not searching for relevance but transcendence and yet yeah. m many churches today are trying to create something that people aren't looking for aren't they mm, yeah yeah absolutely and you know I, I think by transcendence versus relevance I'm not saying that uh, what we do shouldn't relate to the real life uh, the real lives of the people we're trying to serve and, and minister to, obviously it has to be relatable yes. and, you know, apply to their everyday lives. Of course, you know, that's the work of the gospel. And I think what I'm talking about has more to do with, you know, the leaning toward um, style over substance, you know, the, the sort of strong leanings in the digital age to for a variety of reasons. Right. How could you not talk about the virus now, for example, and its effects on yeah. us? Yes. In, yeah, in fact, absolutely. you say we need both. You, you say that in your book. We need both. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, especially now, you know, with COVID-19, I, I would wholeheartedly say, and I've been asked this quite a bit um, lately, you know, uh, going digital right now is the right thing to do. It's the wise yes. and responsible thing to do. Uh, you know, we, we need to bless the world with our absence rather than our presence um, for the common good driven by a love for our neighbors. And, you know, that's absolutely the right thing to do. But I think one of the things that's happening right now, at least in my part of the world, and it seems like with everybody that, that I see online, and um, there seems to be very quickly an onset of what I would call and what others have called digital fatigue. You know, there's something uh, a little bit less than fully human, you know, when all of our connection is happening over screens and, and you know, phones and, and all of that. So, uh, and I think that's a hopeful thing, you know, in my opinion. I, I hope that what this is doing is heightening our awareness of our absolute need for embodied presence, for incarnational, in-the-flesh realities, and that when this is over, whenever it is over, that it will propel us forward into, again, more embodied incarnational realities as the people of God. Right, because some believe the myth that what is new is always better than what is old. Yeah, uh, and that, right. That's well, hard to get. It's called chronological snobbery. Yeah, right. Kind. And you get you get caught in the trap of uh, uh, of revelance. And uh, I uh, I go all the way back to those '60s when you talk about Marshall McLuhan, and was fascinated Ooh. by the medium is the message, you know, and trying to understand that back then. But he he's come forward with uh, some new things that uh, we should be considering, hasn't he? Yeah, McLuhan is this uh, 20th century philosopher, and he actually said some things that were prophetic. No one knew it at the time. They just thought he was a little bit loopy or out there, you know. Um, he was a major figure in his time, as you well know. Uh, yes. But then he lost uh, real influence. Um, and, and then in recent years, it sort of made a, a comeback because he said all these incredible things, like in the 60s and 70s, that now, in light of the Internet, we're realizing, oh, he was like, he was prophetically pointing us to the reality that the Internet would, would come about, you know? And, yes. um, but, yeah, he, he famously coined that phrase, the medium is the message. And he was saying that in part to confront the age-old adage that, you know, the mediums change, but the message stays the same. And he was making the point, no. We have to pay really careful attention to the mediums we use to project whatever message it is we're trying to project, because the medium we use actually influences and impacts the message itself. And uh, I get more in-depth into that in the book, but I certainly think that that's happened uh, on a number of levels in terms of um, who we are as the church. And so that, that's one of my big concerns. Um, and I'm hopeful, again, in this you know COVID-19 world that it's helping us realize some of the shortcomings of the digital mediums that we've so, uh, in some ways, recklessly used in recent years. In your book, you point out that um, the DigiAge's three major contributions to the improvement of the human experience are speed. We have access to what we, what we want when we want, choices. We have access to an endless array of options, individualism, everything from online profiles, to gadgets and so many other things, and then the the opposite effect, uh, the speed of the digital age has made us impatient. The choices of the digital age have made us shallow. 
the individualism of the digital age has made us isolated. Say a little bit about any one of those or however you'd like to say about what the digital age is doing to us in our undoing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you said it beautifully there. You know, those three values, speed, choice, and individualism, on one hand, at least on the surface, they're not bad. You know, they're, right. uh, they're helpful. They, they, they can be leveraged to help us craft uh, an incredibly convenient and efficient life, which many people have in the digital age. But like anything, you know, when things, even good things, go unchecked for too long, when they're uh, put in places of uh, prominence and priority in our lives, uh, in places that they, they never belonged, then values can turn really vicious. They, you know, what was meant to be helpful can become incredibly harmful. And in the digital age, you know, I would suggest that that has absolutely happened, you know, at least on a, a generally speaking. And, you know, like you said, the speed has made us incredibly impatient. Um, all of the choices have made us incredibly shallow, and the hyper-individualism has actually made us incredibly isolated. Um, and the problem with that is, you know, when, when it comes to following Jesus faithfully, when it comes to the process of what we call Christian discipleship, you know, being a student, an apprentice of the way of Jesus, and embodying those realities in our everyday lives— you know, impatience, shallowness, and isolation actually stand in direct diametrical opposition to the values of discipleship to Jesus, which I would argue is incredibly patient, uh, not impatient. It's an incredibly deep work, not a shallow work, and it is by its very nature a communal work, something to be done and lived and worked out uh, in the midst of a community that you belong to um, rather than in isolation. And so that's, that's the sort of big idea, you know, that I'm mm -hmm. trying to propose, that we have to be careful in the digital age because these values uh, actually in some ways stand in stark contrast to the values of discipleship. Right, and then your focus is on, in uh, towards the beginning of the book, still worship in the digital age, and you, you write, I want to consider how the digital age and technology's influence have subverted much of what the worship life of the gathered church is meant to be and how we can move forward in a way that more accurately reflects the worshiping call of the Christian church. What does the, what does the Bible tell us about worship? What can we learn from the Bible why singing isn't enough for worship? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the Bible uh, makes it pretty clear from beginning to end that worship is not just singing. Uh, it's certainly singing is a form and an expression of worship, but, you know, the, the word or words, there are multiple words for the English word worship in the Bible, both in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament and the Hebrew and in the New Testament uh, in the Greek, um, all of the words that we translate into worship actually imply uh, some form of bodily expression. You know, the, the words mean um, things like uh, kneeling down, falling prostrate on the ground, uh, approaching the, the hand of a superior to kiss their hand, which would have been, would have been a, a mm -hmm. symbol of allegiance to uh, that superior. So, so it all involves like whole-bodied participation 
And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, you know, in Romans writes, um, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. And and that text, you know, as, as is true of all of Romans, is uh, laced with meaning, and there's a lot there. But one of the things it certainly does mean is that worship is not a passive sit back and watch and consume a performance right. or a product or content or something. And, you know, the sad thing is it seems like for most uh, modern Christians today, at least here in the West, when you say the word worship, like what do you think of when you think about worship? For most Christians today, that they wouldn't use these words, but essentially what, what they describe is some form of like content consumption, you know? Worship is the music that I listen to or the genre of music or it's the, you know, it's 15, 20 minutes of singing where the professionals on the stage at church do most of the singing and I sort of hum along or sway left to right, you know, as I please. And um, that's not worship, you know, at least at its core essence. And so uh, I think that's problematic because especially in the digital age, you know, there's a tendency because the, the technologies of the digital age are so good at um, helping us curate and then uh, uh, put out there content and a product, um, we have to be careful of that. Because if we're not careful, uh, people are automatically going to default into thinking that to worship means to listen or to watch. And mm -hmm. that's just not true. You know, to worship is to, in an embodied way, fully participate, creatively participate in the worshiping life of the church alongside others. So if I can amplify on what you've just said, uh, you write how we've gone from memory to hymnals to overhead projectors to digital projectors, and you write that uh, the digital age is designed in some ways to make us forget. We forget because we're too busy to remember. We're too busy moving on to the next idea. We're too busy trying to keep up with the church and ministry Joneses. We're too busy seeking the next big thing, and we end up missing the next right thing. The key is to fix our eyes away from the wrong things and onto the right things. And within that context, you talk about the multi-site church that has become the uh, go-to strategy for church growth, that uh, there might be three or four different churches, and on three of them they have screens where the same pastor is speaking to the to his people but there are there are some advantages to that but there are also disadvantages aren't there absolutely uh, certainly like you said there are some advantages i would suggest though that the advantages when you uh dig beneath the surface are actually not advantageous uh, especially when seen through the paradigm of, you know, formation into the likeness of Christ, the life of discipleship, the way that we are being shaped. Um, it, it, I would argue it's actually disadvantageous to uh, create an environment where people begin to understand the church as a place you go to watch a disembodied person on a screen, uh, a person who cannot see you, cannot hear you, cannot feel your presence in the room, cannot experience your leaning in or leaning back, all of those nuanced realities of 
unspoken communication, you know, someone who can't see or experience any of those things, just sort of presenting ideas to you. Uh, certainly, again, some advantages on the surface, right? It's incredibly efficient. Every, you know, campus of that multi-site church is hearing the same person, give the same exact message. I, I understand those advantages. I've been a part of those church, those types of churches, so I get it. But, you know, when we dig beneath the surface, I think, again, the, forma- the, the formation process, the life of discipleship to Jesus is not about watching, uh, it's not about consuming content or a product, it's about an invitation to participate. And that sort of invitation to participate alongside others and alongside whoever it happens to be that's up on the stage, I think that for so many reasons, that demands uh, as much as possible an in-person, embodied, incarnational reality. And I I get, you know, the irony of that, that we're in a time right now in COVID-19 coronavirus where we can't do that. And so um, to be able to do church online is actually a tremendous gift, and I'm incredibly grateful that we at least have that tool. Uh, But we have to, in this time, in my opinion, teach our people, as those of us who are serving and leading in the local church, we have to communicate this reality as a temporary compromise rather than some sort of ongoing convenience, right? That this is what we have right now, and it's the best we can do. Uh, and, and to get creative even in this time to try to stay connected on a more human level, but, but always, you know, point our people to the reality that when this is over, it's going to matter so much that we gather again in the flesh uh, in embodied incarnational ways. And, of course, the key question is how do we prevent that from happening? And uh, you make a distinction that I didn't understand at first till I thought about it a little bit between watching and witnessing. We just have about two minutes to our next break. But tell us a little bit about the difference between watching and witnessing. Yeah, uh, you know, watching is passive. Watching is something is put before you, and the thing that is put before you has, has no sort of understanding of your personhood and your presence in the moment. Um, watching is something, you know, in our sort of digital world, you, you can think of like binge-watching shows on Netflix. We have all the yes. control, and it makes, it makes us feel like we're in control, but really the experience is incredibly passive. Somebody made a TV show or a movie, and they put it out there, and now they're completely, completely detached from you as you watch the thing happening. But witnessing, you know, to witness something is to participate in the thing unfolding. You know, this is why in the court of law, uh, we have eyewitnesses who can often swing uh, a judgment one way or the other, or a verdict one way or the other, because what we understand is that the witness has done more than watch, right? The witness was um, an embodied sort of in-the-flesh person there on site when the thing was happening, and there is a depth uh, uh, to that experience that can't be replicated when somebody's just watching. And so I get into it more in the book, but I think that is a definitive, defining, demarcating line between what it means to be the church, and in particular, what it means to to participate in, in the art of the sermon, you know? Uh, It's not about one person giving a sermon and everybody watching. It's about sermon as a gift uh, of the community from God, and we all together witness, even though it's usually one person saying the words, 
we are all witnessing the unfolding gift of God through um, the exposition of Scripture and the homily of, of God's truth. So that's sort of, uh, that's basically what I mean. Right, and just to read, um, take us out to our break, you write, a sermon is a tri- transcendent act intended to transform us, and transformation demands participation, not simply a detached, isolated response after the fact, but actual participation in the moment. Much the same way, preaching is a participatory act involving both the communicator and the community in the moment, not simply after the fact. <laughs> 